You know, listeners to this program will probably recall one of my favorite passages from Dying of Money to describe the inflationary cycle, or what we will be now calling MMT. And it goes somewhat like this, and I'm reading this from page 71 of the book. And it goes, everyone loves an early inflation. The effects at the beginning of an inflation are all good. There's steep money expansion, rising government spending, increased government budget deficits, a booming stock market, and a spectacular general prosperity, all in the midst of a temporarily stable prices. Everyone benefits and no one pays. That is the early part of the cycle. In the latter inflation, on the other hand, the effects are all bad. The government may steadily increase the money inflation in order to stave off the latter effects. But the latter effects patiently wait. In the terminal inflation phase, there is faltering prosperity, tightness of money, falling stock prices, rising taxes, and still even larger government deficits, and still soaring money expansion, but now accompanied by soaring prices and the ineffectiveness of all traditional remedies. Everyone pays, no one benefits. That is the full cycle of every inflation. How true and prescient those words were. Researching inflation and its causes led me to get into, for example, gold, energy, emerging market, and commodities as primary investments in the last decade. Now, I came across three books after reading Capitalism by George Reisman. In the course of that research, I learned that Jens O'Parson was really a nom de plume used by a well-known lawyer and partner in a prestigious law firm. He wrote the book in 1974. We had just gone off the gold standard, and the book was very critical of the economic policies being pursued by then-President Nixon and also the Arthur Burns Fed. And, of course, if you're a partner at a prestigious law firm, you don't want your name out there being critical of government. But so many of the things that Parson wrote about, including the quote I read here on the air, unfolded exactly as he said they would. So he's long since retired, but I got, I actually, doing some research, I got a hold of his son who arranged the interview, which you're about to hear, and I'm happy to say the book was reprinted in paperback form back in March of 2011. The original book was written in 1974, way ahead of its time. The book out there, it's somewhat pricey, uh, prices ranging from $46 to $149. When I bought my original copy, it was the original 1974 edition. I think I paid 300 bucks for it. As I reminded Ronald Marks, uh, his inflation forecast came true, and it was reflected in the price of his book. So I highly recommend finding a copy or maybe looking at your library. I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview, which was one of my favorite interviews of my broadcast career. That's coming up next. What's your retirement goal? When it comes to retirement, you've probably heard it's all about achieving your number. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we believe retirement is all about you. You are not a number. You can achieve your retirement dreams and goals. Let us help you create a consistent source of income, make the best choices on Social Security and Medicare benefits, and build your legacy for the future. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management at 888-486-3939. Let's work together and make your dreams come true. Call 888-486-3939 today. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC, both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. 
After World War I, the major powers went through a great recession. But unlike the power that was defeated, things were different in Germany. In 1920 and 1921, Germany had enjoyed a remarkable prosperity, envied by the rest of the world. Prices were steady, business was humming, and everyone was working. The stock market was skyrocketing. The Germans were swimming in easy money. Within a year, they were drowning in it. Until it was all over, no one seemed to notice any connection between the earlier false boom and the latter inflationary bust. Fast forward to the 21st century today, and we have central banks around the globe printing money. Will we see inflation again? Well, we're going to be talking about that today with my special guest, Jenzo Parsons. Now, you've heard me talk about dying of money over the years. I've often referred to the author as Jenzo Parsons. His real name is Ronald Marks, and he joins me on the program today. Mr. Marks, it's great to be speaking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. You have written, in my opinion, one of the best books I have ever read on inflation and how it works. Given your law background, how did you acquire the insights into the process of inflation and how it works its way through the economy? Well, it's a process of self-education. I had never had an economics course, which I think was a bit of an advantage because I hadn't been imbued with some of those wrong ideas that economics was teaching. But I saw the inflation starting to happen in the middle 60s, and I wanted to see what was the cause of this. So I conceived of the idea that I have in the book of tracing inflation to the quantity of money times its velocity divided by the amount of assets to be paid for by the money. And before I discovered that that theory had already been created by some economists who were not the orthodox economists, but mavericks of a sort. Who were those economists? Well, Irving Fisher was one. He was a very prominent American economist and had written on the subject back at around the turn of the century. This is before World War One. You know, one of the things I learned in your book, the ability of savers in Germany to hold marks enabled the government to mask the underlying effects of inflation. This storage factor of investors saving marks kept those marks from being dumped immediately into the market. In many ways, just like today, where you have Americans that are holding treasuries or buying treasury bonds, a lot of money has gone into the bond funds. Do you see a lot of similarities between, let's say, what happened in Germany and what's happening today? Well, very much so. In fact, I think it's even worse now than it was in Germany. I did some calculations on the present state of affairs. The money supply has increased by 4.85 since the end of 1979, and prices have only increased by 2.32 times, which means that there's a latent inflation of about 109% by these calculations. That inflated money is mainly, I would say, in the debt markets because you found that even federal debt securities are pretty close to 0% interest which is very contrasting to the situation in the past when outbreaks of inflation were occurring. The interest rates went higher than 10%, for instance. So I think that's where the money is that has been pumped out. And the question is when that money starts to come back from debt securities into goods. You know, this is something I guess people here in the United States have had a tough time understanding. The one thing that the U.S. has as an advantage is we're the world's reserve currency. Does that give us a little bit more leeway in your opinion versus, let's say, a country like Argentina? I don't think it gives you more leeway. I think it gives you less because 
those foreign holders of dollars are the potential for an outburst of inflation. If they lose faith in the dollar, that's what will happen. This happened with Germany, too. German mark was greatly respected at the time, and a great many marks were held by overseas holders, including Americans. And when the inflation started to get rolling, all of that foreign money came into Germany looking for things to buy, and that compounded the inflation instead of reducing it. You talked about in your book a quick and clean inflation which destroys paper wealth like an amputation is often less vicious than a surprised and protracted inflation. Why is that, in your opinion? Well, the longer inflation drags on, the more collateral damage it causes to the economy. Whereas if, for instance, we were to raise all our prices by 100% overnight, there wouldn't be that prolonged pain being inflicted on us. Of course, that isn't the way that inflation has ever ended, so it's really kind of hypothetical. You know, something that you talk about in your book, which we're seeing play out today, is every burst of monetary inflation was followed by a stock market rise and boom with prosperity. Every contraction by a stock market fall and recession. We saw, for example, the boom of the late 90s followed by a contraction and a stock market fall. That was followed by more money printing, and we got another stock market boom and a real estate boom. Then we got a crash in the market again, as well as in real estate. Let's talk about those reservoirs of inflation that you talk so much about in your book, money wealth being one of them and the stock market being another one. Well, it's true that those reservoirs are very serious. I think the largest one is the debt market which is tying up a great deal of money right now. That's what uh, I meant earlier when I mentioned the fact that interest rates are practically zero. And the Fed has been pumping out money at a great rate for the last several years. One of the quotes that I often refer to in your book, and in fact, it's one of my favorites, but it describes the inflation process. I want to read it. My listeners will know it by heart because I often quote it. Everyone loves an early inflation. The effects at the beginning of an inflation are all good. There's steep in money expansion, rising government spending, increased government budget deficits and booming stock markets, and a spectacular general prosperity, all in the midst of temporary stable prices. Everyone benefits and no one pays. That's the early part of the cycle. In the latter inflation, on the other hand, the effects are all bad, the government may steadily increase the money inflation in order to stave off the latter effects, but the latter effects patiently wait. And I think about, Mr. Marx, the last decade where we came out of the tech bubble and the Fed lowered the federal funds rate, the money supply increased, we had general prosperity, the economy took off along with the market and real estate. But then by the time we got to 2006 and 2007, inflation had risen to 5%. Interest rates were rising as the Fed raised the federal funds rate. And eventually, we know what happened. They call it the Great Recession. Tax revenues fell. Money printing increased. Stock prices fell along with real estate. Let's talk about that because I think that's what people forget when the Fed starts to increase the money supply, lower interest rates, eventually it creates a wealth effect. And we see it in the stock market. We see it even in the bond market with lower interest rates and rising bond prices. But it all comes to an end, as all inflations have in history. 
Well, that is certainly true. In this cycle, the prices have not risen anywhere near as much as the money supply has, so that we have some of the effects of the deflation. We don't have a money deflation, but we have a lot of stored-up inflation that is still waiting to happen. And that's money wealth, which is the debt markets, and several of the technicians I've had on the program are predicting that at some point, after five or six years of 0% interest rates, investors are going to start to wake up to the fact that their money doesn't buy the same goods and services, and also that the rate of return is not commensurate with the rate of inflation. Hasn't quite happened yet, but it's a storage that is a potential there. You also talk in your book about when inflation starts to heat up. I can remember President Carter saying that inflation is caused by strange and mysterious forces. Sometimes the government comes up with culprits and scapegoats. It's businesses raising prices, greedy oil companies or unions trying to raise wages. But let's talk about the culprits and the scapegoats, which are never mentioned the fact that it's money creation itself, because all inflation is a monetary event. Right. Can you talk about the quantity theory of money formulating your thesis on inflation? Well, the quantity theory of money is simply that prices are determined by the quantity of money multiplied by its rate of spending. The rate of spending is about 50 times a year in the United States. The quantity times velocity has been divided by the supply of values which are going to be transferred by means of money. That is, supply of values includes the gross national product, but it also includes all the existing assets, stocks and bonds and real estate and all those assets which are available to sell and can be sold. That, by the way, is one of the differences that my analysis takes from uh, Milton Friedman, for instance, who compared the money supply with just the gross national product. And that misses a big reservoir of inflationary potential is in the markets for capital assets. You know, you talk about three variables that are at work in inflation. You have the money supply, and then you have money velocity, how quickly it turns over, and then, of course, the supply of real values or goods. And you talk about in the early stages of inflation, quantity leads, the money supply increases, eventually velocity follows. And one thing that we've seen with the Fed's expansion of its balance sheet coming out of the Great Recession, we've seen an increase in the money supply, but we have yet to see the velocity is that because, Mr. Marx, in your opinion, a lot of that money that could be turned into velocity is waiting in reservoirs of inflation, like in the stock market or the bond market? Well, I'm not sure the velocity has decreased. I think if you were to look at the quantity increase multiplied by velocity, you'd find that there's a lot more purchasing power circulating around. And so far, it has remained in the investment markets instead of the markets for goods and services. So I think the latent inflation is in the capital markets rather than in decreased velocity or anything like that. Yeah, because one of the things you talk about in your book is a man with money can spend it on two principal kinds of things. One kind is current goods and services, which adds to GDP. The second kind is land, property, stocks, and mortgages, which corresponds to national wealth. At any given time, there are two distinct money supplies and two distinct velocities of money. Let's talk about that. 
I may be overstating the separation when I say two distinct money supplies, but what I mean is that there are two separate parts of the money supply which are being used in these two different markets. And I suppose there is a velocity of money in the capital markets and a different velocity of money in goods and services. The outpouring of inflated money usually goes into the capital markets first, creating rising markets and eventually inflation in that market. And then it moves into goods and services where it causes the inflation that's really painful. Could that be something that the Fed is often referring to as the wealth effect? In other words, as money goes into an asset market, whether it was real estate in the last decade or currently stock prices, you know, people feel wealthier. They look at their 401k statements and they see that the stock market is going up. They see that their housing prices are starting to rise. And when they feel wealthier, they're more inclined to go out and spend that money. So eventually, when they start to spend it, it gets into the real economy. Is that the sequence? I don't know whether it's a psychological feeling on the part of the people with the money. I think it's more of a mechanical process. The money just turns over kind of spontaneously. When a person has it, he's ready to spend it. In the capital markets, as you talk about, which is a principal repository of inflation, in my opinion, Mr. Marks, that's the good aspects of inflation. When you see stock prices go up, bond prices go up. But I take a look, as you made reference to interest rates today, I mean, if you're a saver and put your money in treasury bills, a one-year treasury bill is about one-tenth of one percent, If you were in two-year treasury notes, you would get less than three-tenths of a percent. That doesn't even cover inflation by a wide margin. In your book, you talk about this money wealth. And Keynes talked about money wealth was the force to be stripped of. Let's talk about money wealth. When does it rise and basically rebel? Because at some point, it does. And when it does, it does so silently, as you talk about so eloquently in your book. It doesn't go out in the streets and protest like Occupy Wall Street. It just simply begins to withdraw and put the money elsewhere. Right. The inflation of the money supply, as I said, it shows up earliest in the capital markets and then moves into the goods markets. The inflation we've been seeing recently has lowered the interest rates to practically zero, which is an enormous inflation of the value of the asset. I think it's only a matter of time before a reaction will set in, moving a good part of this purchasing power from capital markets into goods. It's a little hard to see that happening when we have a semi-recessionary condition in the goods markets, which is something that hasn't usually happened in inflation. In other words, inflation tends to stimulate those markets rather than depress them. So it's a little hard to guess when the movement will occur, but in the end, it seems almost certain that it has to occur, the movement of money purchasing power from capital markets to goods and services. Yeah, in your book, you talk about the inflationary assault on money wealth succeeds quite nicely for a time, but only until money wealth finds that it can erect a convenient and complete defense by simply abolishing fixed interest. When this takes place, the holders of money wealth express their revolt by the simple act of getting rid of their money and money wealth and declining to hold it in the future any longer than necessary to get rid of it. They do not fly flags or demonstrate in the streets or express their revolt. They simply get rid of their money. And all of those reservoirs, well, sometimes that's where the money goes, whether it goes into goods, real estate, or other type things. 
What about the role, Mr. Marks, of taxes? Money inflation operates on both the tax side and the distribution side, a valve which moves money wealth directly from creditors who saved and held capital to debtors who spent and consumed. For example, today, if you are a debtor, you can go out, you can refinance your house, you can get some of the lowest mortgage rates that I have seen in half a century. On the other hand, if you were diligently saving your money for retirement and you're retired trying to live off your savings, your savings, in effect, have been destroyed because you can't get a return. I mean, five years ago, had you had a million dollars, I could have invested it in two-year treasury notes at 5%. You would have got a monthly income of, let's say, $4,000. If I was to invest it in two-year treasury notes today, you'd be lucky to get a monthly income of $200. So in this process, it has destroyed the returns for savers. If you're a debtor, you're making out like a bandit. If you're a saver, you're being robbed. Right. As I say in the book, the inflation tax on dollar capital is the key element in the government's use of inflation as an active policy. Inflation tax draws heavily on the holders of money wealth and distributes to the people who benefit from the inflation, that is consumers mainly. As I say in the book, the way to substitute for the inflation tax would be a capital tax in form. Two or three percent tax on capital could substitute for the inflation financing that the government is depending on. Is this in some effect what we've done since the beginning of the year? For example, the tax on capital gains was raised to 20 percent. There's an additional Obamacare tax of 3.8, so you're at almost 24% on capital gains. And recently, the state of Michigan and Illinois has now raised an estate tax on wealth of 10% on wealth over a million dollars. So are we beginning to see the signs of this? I guess I would comment on a couple of those taxes. The Michigan tax that you cite seems to be much too heavy. The most you could collect in a capital tax is 1% or 2%. Because you would almost expect at some point if taxes got too high, I know I see this even with my own clients, they are less inclined to take capital gains. If they have a gain in real estate or they have a gain in stock, they just soon sit on it and allow the stock to appreciate rather than, let's say, take those gains and pay the taxes where like in my own state of California, where the taxes can be 13.3%, you add that to almost 24%, you're talking about 37% or almost 40% of your gain, which gets rather high. You may have noticed that one of the things I proposed in rationalizing the tax system was to index the basis for the capital asset and then tax the gain at ordinary income rates. And I think that would be a useful way to increase the yield while at the same time making more sense. In other words, when we tax capital gains on the nominal gain, to some extent you're taxing the return of capital. If the value of the asset has increased with inflation, you're taxing the inflation the way we do it now. If we were to tax real gain at ordinary income rates, it might be a draw as far as tax revenue goes, but it would make more sense so that people with long-term holdings would not be penalized when they have to sell it with a gain that's not real. You know, going back to your book, when you wrote it, which was in the early 70s, you predicted that the double-digit inflation would eventually end. How did you see that? 
What I saw ending it was that prices would catch up with the increased money supply at a certain point. And I must say, I have to take credit for predicting that correctly because the double-digit inflation did slow down to the same speed as the money creation when that latent inflation of about 20-odd percent had been worked off by rising prices. Prices rising faster than the money supply was rising. And that occurred in, what, 74, I guess. Now, when you began writing this book, I know you did it over a period of time. In the beginning, you decided to self-publish the book. Why was that? Well, I made a couple of abortive efforts to get a publisher. I asked the regular publishers if they were interested in it, and nobody was. So I said, well, all right, I'll publish it myself. I don't think they could see the strength of the argument I was making about what the money supply was doing. So I tried it myself. Well, I'm glad to see that. A final question is, you've seen this inflationary process play out over time. Looking at what has unfolded over the last decade, if you were to write your book today, what would you change or what would you add to it? I guess what I would add to it is to try to analyze the comparative rates of money and price inflation since 78. And in many ways, the experience in 78 is similar to what had occurred prior to 74, the much greater increase in money than prices to date, which it doesn't seem to show a strong tendency to liquidate itself, but it's there. And I would have to say that in all probability, it will liquidate itself at some point by a higher rate of price inflation than money expansion. As you take a look at what we've done and what the Fed's doing now, do you expect to see higher rates of inflation going forward? Yes, I do. Very much higher. In the area like the 70s, where I think when I got in this business, could we see double-digit inflation again? I don't see any reason why not. The money support for that double-digit inflation is there. The only thing that stands in the way is that business isn't good enough for everybody to feel ready to raise its prices. I don't know exactly why that is, but it is. Well, speaking of inflation, Mr. Marks, I have an original copy of your book, which on the cover says (laughs) (laughs) $9.95. I paid $300 for it, so saw a little bit of inflation, and I'm just looking at Amazon. Your book was released and reprinted again, and on the hardcover, it's going for $189 and almost $100 used. So I think investing in your book has been one of the great investments of my life. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining us on the Financial Sense News Hour. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and I can't tell you how much I admire the work that you've done. I've learned a great deal from it. When I take a look at events with central bankers around the world, and I keep referring back to your book, as I mentioned earlier as we began this interview, it's one of the best books I've ever read on inflation. And Mr. Marks, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Well, thank you for your thoughts about it, and I wish you well. Well, thank you very much, and I wish you well. Godspeed. Well, that completes my interview with Ronald Marks. Once again, his nom de plume was Jens O'Parson. And I'll tell you, investing in his book has been a great investment. I bought the book. It was re-released back in 2011. And if you can get them, pick them up while you can now because they won't be available for very much longer. I'm just looking at Amazon now and the supply... There are 13 new copies left and seven used, so there are only 20 copies left of this book. 
And believe me, when you read it, it will be well worth the buy because there is no finer book on the inflationary process than dying of money. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk